Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Jason Karp, the founder and CEO of HumanCo, a mission-driven, disruptive holding company focused on investing in healthier living. Before diving into this endeavor, Jason had a very successful 20-year career in the hedge fund industry, culminating in a six-year run as founder of Turbion Capital. Our conversation covers Jason's career in hedge funds across quant research, quantum mental investing, and entrepreneurship. Along the way, we touch on lessons derived from checklists, poker, and chess, and discuss Jason's sobering take on the hedge fund industry today. 
We then turn to changes in his life, including moving from New York City to Austin, Texas, and focusing on his lifelong passion for health and wellness. We discuss Jason's autoimmune disease, testing the limits of human performance, and the sickness that led to the creation of Hugh Kitchen with his wife and brother-in-law. Lastly, we discuss the formation of HumanCo, a holding company investing in food and consumables that create clean solutions to common problems using only the highest quality ingredients. We cover the attractive attributes of consumable businesses, the use of data and artificial intelligence to source companies and improve inventory management, efficiency of a holding company structure, incubating companies, leveraging data science, and an example in the cannabis space to work on the controversy surrounding vaporization. Before we get going, you can sign up at CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com to receive three different sources of information. Using the buttons on the homepage or the email list tab, you can receive an email from me once a month with the best things I've read and listened to over the month. While on that page, you can also sign up to receive our blog of industry news. Lastly, hop on the premium tab and subscribe to get access to the library of transcripts of podcast shows. Feel free to forward the emails you receive to friends to help spread the word. Please enjoy my first meeting with Jason Karp of HumanCo. Jason, great to see you, bud. Great to see you. Well, let's just start at the beginning. Well, I went to Wharton undergrad. I was very interested in finance and statistics, always fascinated with probabilities. And, you know, as a kid, I played a lot of poker and learned how to card count and was just sort of fascinated in anything that was probabilistic. And I kind of had a random stroke of luck in being recruited to go to a hedge fund in 1998. And so I started at a quantitative hedge fund here in New York. I was 21 years old. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just, back then, even for the hedge fund world, it was kind of the Wild West. And I started off as a quant researcher. And what was fascinating about that start was it just sort of taught me a different framework on how to approach life and how to use data and probabilities and facts to make judgments and inferences on things that people had a hard time deciphering. And I only stayed in the quant function for about four and a half years. I started as a pure researcher and an analyst, and then I moved into more of a quantitative portfolio manager. We did a lot of things at our fund, everything from statistical arbitrage to index arbitrage to volatility arbitrage to more fundamental quantitative hybrid investing, which they now call quantumental. And I got out of it in 2002, primarily because I sort of felt like it was an arms race which it certainly has become, but where it was just sort of a race for people who had faster machines and faster connections to the New York Stock Exchange. And I never felt that I had the sort of staying power to compete in that arms race, and I certainly didn't have the capital back then. And I always felt that my personal edge or my strengths were more in my judgment. And I had a mentor a long time ago who told me that he believed that almost everything that was discoverable in finance would be arbitraged away, but human judgment would not. And that human judgment, good judgment, was rare. And that balancing it with emotional discipline and not being impulsive and certain characteristics that now people sort of attach to EQ or emotional intelligence, 
I felt like that was my strength. And so I pivoted from quant to more of a quant fundamental approach where I used a lot of the machines and the data and the systems that we had designed to basically just help us make better decisions. And I became obsessed with the concept of decision-making and what goes into good decision-making and how do you think about decision-making and how do you make it repeatable and how do you avoid noise and bias? And, and so I just immersed myself into behavioral finance and all the things from Thaler and Tversky. And now there've been a lot of books written about this topic, but I was just sort of fascinated in what made humans tick. And I love psychology. And, and so I then spent the next 15 years of my career basically being much more of a fundamental investor. And I used quantitative principles, particularly probabilities and systems, to help me make better decisions over time. And I was at that hedge fund for about seven years. Then I was at what was then called SAC for about four. Then I was the co-CIO at a Dallas-based fund called Carlson Capital. And then in mid-2012, I decided that it was time for me to kind of go out on my own and just try it myself. And I, I launched my own fund at the end of 2012 called Turbion Capital. So a couple things in that overview. So the first is, of the many systems, tools, behavioral tendencies that you studied and yourself and others, were there any key things that you took away that you implemented, say, when you went to start Turbion? Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned a ton along the way. And I'd say that I had a lot of evolutions as a person. And I think good thinkers, not just good investors, go through these evolutions where you think you have something nailed down and you get arrogant and then you realize you don't know it. And probably one of the greatest things for me is I've always been very process-driven. And I've always been a believer in checklists. And so when Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, came out, I was obsessed with this concept. And people like us who had good academic success and then had good career success early, there's a sort of a natural arrogance that develops about your memory and your intelligence, and you think you can do anything. And what you realize when you read all the science is that it doesn't matter how smart you are. You still need the process and you still need the checklist because there's all sorts of ways that you can self-sabotage and not realize it and just forget things along the way and even ignoring cognitive biases and there's a list of over 100 now that humans are susceptible to. For me, it was having repeatable process and then really respecting, and, and this is what we talked about with Michael Mobison. And, you know, Michael was one of the first pioneers in some of his early writing on this, this concept of process over outcome. And I'd say 15, 20 years ago, there weren't that many people talking about it like this. And I had a tremendous amount of influence from poker. I used to play a ton of poker in college. My father taught me how to play in middle school. And poker was kind of my first obsession. And I got really into poker before poker was cool, before online poker. And back then in those days, like it was hard to find good poker games because poker wasn't like that sexy. There was no TV show about it. It was before rounders. There was no online poker. And there were a lot of old, seemingly roguish people who were professional poker players who were consistently winning the World Series of Poker. And people used to think that poker was mostly luck, but there were all of these kind of anecdotal observations that the same guys were winning all these tournaments at the same time. And poker has all the same principles that I think make a good investor, except what's amazing about poker is you learn them much faster. The concepts of pot odds and money management 
and basically process over outcome. You know, there's hands that you could play that you might play poorly and still win, which is teaching you the wrong lesson. And there's hands that you play perfectly and lose. And in my early days, when I started managing people, I would train them in poker, specifically to teach them a lot of these decision-making principles, because you can't control the hand that you're dealt. You have to kind of make the best of it. And so poker and investing, and, and there was a course I took in college that was taught by this brilliant professor that used chess as a metaphor. There's all these metaphors that basically have the same message, which is, well, stepping back from chess, I teach a course at NYU as a guest lecturer for a friend of mine, but I teach a course on probabilistic decision-making to seniors in the business school. And I start off describing the difference between what they call combinational chess and what they call positional chess. And this is probably one of the greatest strategies or systems I've developed for thinking and decision-making. Basically, prior to the 1800s, chess had been around for like a thousand years. And everyone had played chess doing combinational chess, which is the way most people play it, which is I move X, you move Y, I do this, you do this. And you're sort of thinking in moves ahead. And you're trying to think two moves ahead, five moves ahead, 10 moves ahead. And even the most brilliant humans can't think more than 20 moves ahead. And when you start getting that many moves ahead, you're dealing with so many permutations that it's almost irrelevant. And a young genius came along, I believe he was British, named Paul Morphy, and he became the world champion of chess at 21 years old, and he pioneered this type of chess called positional chess, which is now what all the top players play. And it's pretty simple, which is that I can't anticipate all the combinations that you're going to play, so I'm going to position my board in such a way that I can handle whatever you throw at me. I can play better defense, I can play better offense, I don't know what you're going to do, but I can actually position my board in a better way, putting the probabilities on your side without knowing any certainty. And this became the default method of top chess since then, and it still is today. And it's one of the most important frameworks that I teach the students, and it's what I live by, which is having a good process basically sets up your chessboard to deal with more crap. And it sets it up in a way that you can take advantage of luck, when it comes your way, and that you can buffer or defend against the crap when it comes your way. And for me, I'd say that all of these things tie back into that in terms of setting me up to make better decisions. All right. So you've had this incredible experience, quantitative investing, fundamental investing. You're now going to start your own fund. What happens? It was a difficult time. I felt like I'd sort of reached the plateau of working for somebody else. I wanted to try it out on my own. I had been very successful in my own investment strategies and implementations up until that point, but I'd never done it completely on my own where I'm fully accountable and have nobody else to blame. And that's a huge difference. I'd managed lots of people, and so I felt confident in my ability to build a team again and do that all over again. But I was definitely very nervous and being a portfolio manager or a founder of any type of investment business is still an entrepreneurial activity. There's inherently a deep insecurity that you kind of need to do that. There's a chip on everyone's shoulder, and I certainly had a chip that I wanted to sort of see if I could do it myself. And I wanted to see when I did it myself what it would look like. And for me, again, it was very process-driven. So I got my hands on everything I could. I talked to you about starting a hedge fund, you obviously had a lot of experience with Protégé and, and what the elements of success were for early stage funds. While I've definitely 
had an ego about certain things in life over the years, which I then had to sort of beat myself out of. I've always known that I'm better with good teams. And I've never pretended that I could do things completely on my own. And so I felt like I needed to surround myself with some good, diverse people and thinking. And then from there, it was very methodical and it was very process-driven about how I wanted to build it, what I was trying to achieve. And that's kind of how it began. And so how did it play out? It was a really good journey. The first three years were incredibly strong. My last three years were not so strong. My last few years were the only periods that I've ever lost money in 20 years of being an investor, which was very frustrating on the public side. The net of the journey, I think, was a decent one, at least for the people who got in in the beginning. From the beginning, we net made money for all of our investors, and it was a decent outcome from the beginning. It was a fascinating journey because in the beginning, we ran a very difficult strategy, which was effectively market neutral. It was equities only. We were confined to specific geographies. We wanted to deliver basically pure alpha, and we wanted to do it without much leverage, if at all. And that was unusual and unconventional because the market neutral or very low beta strategies have always employed a fair amount of leverage to make small alpha streams look better. And so we were looking for big alpha streams, which as the market has gotten much more efficient, have been obviously harder to come by. And I think what was interesting for me was the amount of self-discovery I got out of this chapter in the sense that I realized that I've always been an entrepreneur at heart and that I actually channeled my entrepreneurial energy into investing. There's some people who were born just to invest, and you know those people. They're usually very odd. They usually have no hobbies or skills or interests outside of staring at stocks or quotes or whatever. And I wasn't one of those people, actually. I was obsessed with investing, but I was obsessed more with problem solving. And I was obsessed more with building things with duration and things that lasted. And I loved managing people and I loved training people. And so for me, this last chapter of Turbion really sort of taught me that what I love is being an entrepreneur. And I love investing, but I don't love short-term investing. And it's gotten a lot worse over the years. But being stuck to a screen where more than half of the variability is random and you could do everything right from a process perspective but actually still get it wrong, that was incredibly frustrating for me. And so what I kind of knew in the latter stages of Turbion was that I wanted to do something where I had a lot of personal edge. I could look in the mirror and say, I have significant advantages over my peers and over competitors, and I know why. That was number one. Number two, it was incredibly important for me to have a much clearer linkage between process and outcome, where I believe that if my process was the best, that there would be much less variability and randomness to the outcome. And I think what, what is so frustrating about short-term investing is that it's still pretty random that I've seen guys who I think are charlatans who have great results. And I've seen guys who I think are the smartest people I've ever encountered and probably have some of the best process and have lost money or not done well for the last four years. There are actually other fields, because I've studied a lot of them, where the linkage between process and outcome is much more linear and much clearer. And so that for me was kind of the biggest revelation. So what's your take on the hedge fund industry today? Well, I'm obviously biased because I retired from it at the end of 18, and we returned all of our money. 
And over 20 years, and again, I've always been a student of the industry. You remember my letters. I used to write about lots of different elements of the industry and what makes it what it is. A lot of the elements as an industry have become hyper-commoditized and hyper-competitive. Most of the easy alpha is gone, at least in the durations that most people, including myself, were used to. 95% of managers the bulk of their returns are some form of beta. And that's fine. I invest in things that have beta all the time. But I don't necessarily believe that allocators should pay full fees for that. Because now in this new world, you can replicate that quite easily. It's also gotten a lot less fun. Shorting got so much harder. I used to love to short. It's gotten much more competitive in terms of hard to borrows and between passive and quants. I really think it's changed the dynamics of the industry. I always think there's going to be great opportunities for public investing. This is not necessarily a a statement on public investing. I just think the types of edges and the fun that we used to have in identifying areas to exploit and areas where there was just rich opportunities, I feel like it's much more of a dearth of those types of opportunities than there used to. How do you balance that belief about what's happening in the structure of the industry and the investment opportunities with someone you know, like people you mentioned that are the smartest people you know, and you know because you were in it and you were competing against them that they're the best around. When you think about how you invest your own money, do you say, well, yeah, but they're in the wrong box? Or do you say, no, this particular practitioner, I think they'll still figure it out? I think it depends. There are a handful of people that are still out there that I think are extraordinary. And I've given a few of them my money. And that's with fees. And they're people who I think truly have something special. But again, I think the averages are doomed. I think even 80th percentile is doomed. I think you have to be in the 99th percentile at this point, whereas 20 years ago, you could have been in the 60th percentile and you were pretty good. It's partially a function of that. I think there are a lot of people who are unwilling, despite their genius, who are unwilling to acknowledge that this game has changed as much as it has. And they're sort of, in an Einsteinian way, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And I think they need to have a dramatically different structure. I mean, I had a lot of conversations with some of my really good, loyal investors before we returned the money, where they would ask me, like, there must be ways that you'll want to do this and you should keep doing it, but just change your structure. And I actually believe that is an answer. I believe that there's a lot of people that are in the wrong structure. I think we were in the wrong structure in terms of your objectives, your biases towards betas and nets, leverage, and your time horizon, most importantly. I think opportunities are always going to be there, but I think duration matters much more than it ever has. And I think the ability to sort of ignore the noise, which is really hard for running outside money, to be able to just like produce three quarters in a row of horrible returns and act like it doesn't matter, there's only a handful of guys in the industry that can actually pull that off. And those are the guys who have 20-year track records. There are some people who are brilliant, but they need a different structure, and they need to be willing to have a frank conversation with their investors without worrying that their investors are going to yell style drift to say, I'm still great at this, but I need a different structure. I need different duration. I need a call-down structure where I can call money for my investors when an opportunity shows up, which is probably two to three times a year. And you as an allocator have to be okay with me not doing anything for six months. 
Because there's also this perception that if I'm paying you fees, you have to be active. You have to be doing stuff all the time. And it's actually a good luxury to be able, a profitable luxury, to be able to say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything while things are sort of in the 75th percentile brackets. I'm only going to look for things when they're beyond two standard deviations on either tail. And otherwise, I'm just not going to do anything. So that's kind of how I think. It's hard to put together for sure. Yeah. All right. So as we talk about this transition to what you're doing now, part of it, what we haven't talked about, was a personal transition where you've moved from New York to Austin, Texas. What's that been like? Yes. I've made some of my friends describe it as a midlife crisis. I've always viewed life as a journey, and I'm always trying to learn about myself and about what makes me happy and what makes me a better person. And what I realized with deciding to exit the hedge fund industry and focus mostly on health and wellness was that New York City as a place to live has never really agreed with me. And I think this is an individual thing. Everyone has different utility curves on these types of topics. But for me, I'm an outdoorsy person. I've struggled with autoimmune disease for more than half of my life and all of my adult life. And I'm also very type A. I'm very susceptible to the energy around me in both the people and the atmosphere. And then I also, as part of my autoimmune problems, I don't detoxify properly. And so a city like this brings out in many ways the worst in me. And it's part of what made me actually good at my job in my early days, but it's also what drove me to illness, which is I'm hyper-competitive. I was a competitive athlete my whole life, and I was a competitive athlete in college. And New York has the best and the brightest people. And I'm just sort of used to operating at 11 out of 10. And when I'm surrounded by all those people, it makes me want to do that too. And so Austin was really part of the culmination of this kind of recognition that I think I can work more efficiently. I can work happier. Austin has a lot of benefits, I think, over New York, and it's why it's the fastest growing city. There's more influx into Austin from LA, San Fran, and New York than any other city. And the reasons are sort of obvious. Number one, for finance-focused people, it has no state or city taxes. So there's a huge tax difference from living in LA, New York, going to Austin. The weather, except for August and September, is phenomenal year-round. So it's warm and sunny all the time. It's a very outdoorsy community. People are much more focused on being healthy, being active. You see just much more physical activity as part of people's daily routines. And there's a handful of cities that have some of those attributes. But what makes Austin unique is it also has the entrepreneurial energy and the business commercial focus that some other cities that are up and coming do not. There's some cities that have low tax regimes that are sort of retirement-ish. I'm not going to mention any other cities because I don't want to offend any of those people who, <laughs> who live in those. There's some that don't really have the commercial activity that Austin does. And Austin also has a tremendous amount of cultural diversity, which was also important to us. You get people from everywhere there. You have people from all different fields of science and finance and tech and health. So it stimulates that aspect of my brain where I just love absorbing information from other people. So you mentioned your autoimmune disease. 
and we're going to talk about health and wellness. What's been your path personally and your experience with health and wellness? So this has been probably the most formative and scariest part of my life. And one of the things that I've now discovered having not been in the hedge fund industry is that that I've had periods where my health has been bad, where I've also struggled with depression as well. And this was at a time when I have a great marriage, I have great kids, I was financially very successful, and all the typical things that people think are supposed to make you happy didn't matter. And I just want to say that because there's always been such a stigma on depression and mental illness that it's a sign of weakness. And only in the last few years have a bunch of notable, famous, or successful people come out and said, I too have had this. And it's one of these things that as a kid, you never think you have these fantasies that, yo, if I make X and I have a house and I have this kind of car and I have a family, like I'm just going to be the happiest person. And you start to realize that for me, the single most important ingredient to life is your health. If you're not healthy, everything else is worthless. And if you're not happy with what you do every day and you're not healthy on top of it, then it's a disaster. So for me, I grew up in kind of a middle-class household. I always wanted to please my parents. I wasn't actually an overachiever until I got to college. I was actually quite an underachiever, but I had kind of a fluke of luck happen in my first semester of college where I sort of decided I wanted to change myself and not be this sort of underachiever who always could say, well, I didn't try, so that's why I didn't do well. And I kind of flipped it on its head, and I went insanely overachiever. And I basically just constantly was testing the limits of how much I could accomplish and do. And I taught myself how to speed read. I taught myself how to basically go without sleep for extended periods of time. I read research on what the military was doing, on how to improve human performance. And this was not to make more money. This was just because I was obsessed with improving human capabilities. And I wanted to sort of test the limits of this. And I started doing this in college. And I had these really problematic feedback loops because what I was doing was working. What's an example? In college, I taught myself how to go extended periods of time without sleeping. There's a lot of military principles on what to do with soldiers on intermittent napping and caffeine dosing And probably another one was speed reading. I taught myself how to speed read in a couple months, and it was pretty awesome. It was stuff like out of Goodwill Hunting. I was going through books in like an hour, and I was retaining a lot of it. And I sort of thought that these shortcuts had no downsides. And when I was, I think, 19 and 20, you could pull that off. But what started to happen when I got out of college, and I started in my new job, and I had some very early success which then made me think, ooh, I could do more of this stuff and I want to conquer the world and developed this sort of insanely idiotic God complex about I could just accomplish anything I wanted to. The methods that I had started in college, I started trying at work, except now I was eating like crap. I wasn't exercising. I had a lot more stress in my life. And it turns out that my body, from some of my autoimmune and genetic stuff, couldn't handle it. And so I got very, very sick about a year and a half into the job. And it was at a time when I had achieved financial success way beyond anything I had ever hoped. And yet I was getting very, very sick. And the worst thing was, is they, I was losing my vision. And so the diagnosis I had was this degenerative corneal disease called keratoconus, where your cornea degrades over time and you eventually go blind and you have to have your cornea replaced. And so I had to put my name on a corneal transplant list. 
I wear contacts. I don't have great vision and I wear contacts and I was seeing double. And so I couldn't wear contacts anymore because the contacts weren't working. So I had to wear glasses again and the glasses didn't do it either. So I saw double and I had halos around everything for probably four or five months. And I fell into a deep depression because I had all these other illnesses start showing up. I had a form of alopecia where you lose your hair in clumps. I had terrible atopic skin diseases like psoriasis and eczema. And I also was misdiagnosed with testicular cancer, which was very difficult. There were several weeks where I actually thought there was a lump. They didn't know what it was. They had suspected that's what it was. It turns out it wasn't. And it was a really traumatic time for me as a 23-year-old. And I fell into a deep depression, and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my parents. I sort of pretended on the outside that I was, like, kind of okay. But my boss knew that I was really sick because I had to keep leaving work to go to doctors. And obviously, you could sort of see that I looked like something was wrong with me. And I kind of had this pride, and I didn't really want to talk about it. And I definitely didn't want to take crazy medication to try to fix it. And so I just went into a hole. I did a lot of research on my skin disease, and I sort of discovered that there was a a correlation in some of the early studies between the eye disease I had and the skin disease that I had. And I sort of took this naive view that maybe the doctors were wrong, and if I could make my skin disease go away, which there was a lot more research on than the eye disease, then maybe my eye disease would reverse, even though there was no known cure for my eye disease, and it was considered to be degenerative. And over the course of nine months, I basically massively cleaned up my life. And so because I had taught myself how to not sleep, I had to reteach myself how to sleep, which was very difficult. I gave up caffeine. I gave up alcohol. I gave up processed foods. I experimented with giving up gluten. But back then it was very fringy and nobody really knew what gluten-free really even meant. I basically went ultra clean with my lifestyle. I started exercising much more. And over the course of nine months, every single thing reversed. And I had this epiphany, you know, in life you get these, these moments where you can see it as clear as day, like that moment changed my life forever. And I was seeing this arrogant ophthalmologist, New York City, Park Avenue guy, who just sort of thought he was the cat's meow. And he had told me a while before that, when I told him my hypothesis of how I was going to reverse this disease, and he was really condescending to me. And he said, Jason, you know, don't get your hopes up, kid. This is a degenerative disease. Maybe you can stall it, but... That stuff doesn't work. And Western medicine believes that all these lifestyle things, or it used to, things like food and sleep, that they don't actually matter, which is insane. And so when I came back to him and I said, hey, doc, my vision's back, there's actually an empirical objective test that they can do, which measures the surface area of your eye called corneal topography. Your cornea, when it's healthy and functioning, is spherical. And my eye was perfect. And he could not believe it. And he actually said it out loud. Maybe I'd misdiagnosed this kid. I don't understand what happened. He brought in a colleague. He'd never seen this before. And that moment, that was the moment that I said, you know what? I'm never going to just accept expert opinion on this type of stuff. Food actually can be medicine. Our understanding as human beings of health and wellness is like in inning two. And there's not enough science on it. And I am going to basically just change my perspective on life going forward. And from that moment on, like everything in my life changed. I started really changing my lifestyle thereafter, which was coincidentally and fortunately right when I met my wife, which is also a huge help for health. I kind of knew that there's almost no morbidity statistic that is more determinant of early death than being unhappy and lonely. And I have a weird 
composition in that I'm part introvert. I like being by myself, but I actually also like people. And I sort of knew that I really wanted a good companion, wanted someone that could help me not only have a family, but be a partner. And so I started living like this way from there. And and I stayed in the hedge fund business until the end of 2018. And when I kind of had this metamorphosis of coming out of this hell that I was in, that was 2003, right? So I stayed in the hedge fund business for another 15 years. But I think I did it smarter. And I, I tried to be much healthier along the way. But I had several relapses along the way. It wasn't a smooth sale. And what I knew was that I was just intensely fascinated. And I found in my free time, I spent all my time thinking about this stuff, human performance, health and wellness. And for me, because there's so many things that affect me negatively, I had to become an expert on all adulterants and all lifestyle things that that made me feel like crap. And so when I wasn't doing investment research, I was just thinking about this, And I started looking for ways to get involved in other companies that were doing this. And it was in 2009, 2010, call it five years later, my wife's brother, he started reading a lot of the same books that I was reading. And he was fascinated in human performance. He didn't have the autoimmune issues that I did, but he was fascinated. And he and I would geek out and read books and scientific literature on what does sleep deprivation do to you and what happens if you give up grains and what happens if you have certain dietary protocols, et cetera. And he basically pushed me to say, hey, let's create a place in New York City where all of the food in it adheres to our principles, where everything in the food is as trustworthy as we would want it. Because even in New York City, which is probably one of the top culinary places in the world, you couldn't find it. You had places that were kind of really farm to table that still had some junk in it, but the farm-to-table stuff was really unapproachable. It was expensive, and it wasn't for kind of everybody. And then you had, on the other side of the spectrum, you had these really hippie, bohemian, raw vegan-type places that you really only would want to eat if you were sick. And I wasn't sick anymore. I love food. And so we sort of decided that we had to create a place that met all of the guardrails that we wanted in a place. And... What was challenging is that, A, I was a professional investor and knew that restaurants are terrible businesses most of the time. B, I knew nothing about restaurants actually running one, nor did my brother-in-law. So we knew what we didn't know, but we knew that the world needed this. And my view was if we could just create a place that was awesome and it broke even or made a little bit of money, that was good. And I would be really happy if we could sort of prove to New York that you could make great, delicious food that didn't have any adulterants in it. And that started the next chapter of where we are today, which was doing that. And we named it Hugh, by the way. It's called Hugh Kitchen. And we named it Hugh because we believed that people weren't eating like humans were meant to anymore. And that all of the illnesses that everyone was seeing, mine included, but also the obesity epidemic, diabetes epidemic, how many children are now getting sick with all sorts of weird diseases, this was related to what we were consuming. And I really became passionate about reversing this trend. And so I started looking for a lot of other companies. I started looking public and private for companies that cared about this stuff. And what we found was there just weren't that many. It started to become a really rapidly growing segment of the consumer space, but most people still were relatively uneducated. There wasn't a lot of experts or people who really lived this way. People started getting involved into it just because it was growing. And so I became then obsessed with what are other ways I can express capital and my time 
in areas outside of Hue where it's the same philosophy and it's the same ethos. And fast forward to today, what I found is that there's many, many verticals where there's a huge opportunity for developing a cleaner version with real trust of things that people want to consume. Well, why don't we first dive into this by framing out what it is you're doing today structurally, and then we'll walk through the investment opportunity. Sure. So we created a holding company called Human Co. It's not a fund. It is a holding company. And the easiest way to think about it is think of a a Berkshire Hathaway type of business focused on cleaner living, healthier outcomes, and sustainability. And that's its entire focus. And I am of the belief now as a both a professional investor for 21 years, as well as a consumer who's been living in this world for a long time, that there are a lot of verticals and a lot of categories where there needs to be a much better, cleaner solution to common things that we consume every day. And by consumables, and so we have this tagline that we want to sort of humanize consumables, and that's why we call it Human Co., Consumables are anything that we actually consume as people. It's not just food or beverage. It's also things that we put on our body, in our body, things from nutrition, supplements, personal care, things like makeup and shampoo and suntan lotion and bug spray. These are all things that we're lathering on ourselves. Our skin is our largest organ. And this is going into our body, in many cases, much faster and much worse than if we're eating it. And I've had a lot of success in the consumer space. I've invested in a handful of companies. Hue has been a really great experience, but I've learned just a tremendous amount over the last six, seven years about how the industry works, supply chains, retail, what all the kind of problems are that lead to such high failure rates in startups, formulations, R&D. These are a lot of things that you kind of have to learn the hard way. And through a lot of my investing, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen failures. I've seen successes. We've developed just a great network of people in all these different channels. And I think most importantly, I wanted to create HumanCo because I felt like large corporations in the consumable space have lost trust. And for good reason. People don't trust the big food companies. People don't trust some of the big cosmetic companies. And they shouldn't. Because what's happened over the last 50 years is that As these companies went public, developed a lot of shareholders, shareholders got very smart. There's been an increasing focusing solely on shareholder value and profits. And to make consumable companies more profitable, you have to do things like increase their shelf life and substitute out natural ingredients for synthetic ingredients because those are cheaper and make things more consistent and make them like they're semiconductors when in reality, a lot of these things are organic material that aren't supposed to be perfectly consistent. And so what's happened in all of these businesses, and you know, Kraft Heinz is the perfect example of this, is that there's been almost this 3G mentality towards things that we put on and into humans. And that has been potentially, for some period of time, good for shareholder value. It has been horrific for humanity. It has been horrific for human health. And now we're actually starting to see that it actually hasn't been good for shareholder value because people are starting to get wiser of, wait a minute, what am I putting in my body? What am I putting on my body? What is in this crap? And we're now at an inflection point where 
we have to restore trust in companies that are not just mom and pops. Because if I want to change the perception and I want to actually affect health outcomes and I want to produce things that people enjoy consuming and improve their health, I can't be a tiny company. I have to have scale. I have to have distribution. I have to be able to reach the middle of this country. And right now, there's no trust for big companies. And I believe that there are large companies where people think of them as great still. Think of like Apple or Nike or Tesla, where they're very large and they're still trusted and people still want to consume their products or like their products. Food has lost that. And some of the non-food consumables has also lost that. And I think there's a way to restore that trust. And I don't think there's many people who know how to do it. And we believe we can. So you mentioned we a couple of times. Who's involved in the we? So my co-founder is a guy named Ross Berman. Ross has been a good friend of mine for probably 18 years. Incidentally, I met him through poker. And uh, he joined me at Turbion about a year ago, more to sort of help out some of the family office activities that we were doing. But Ross has a great background in derivatives. He ran several hedge funds. He's one of the best people I know in terms of sizing up risk and making decisions. And he's also just a great friend and he's just a great partner. We have three other people that are part of our team. One is a data scientist. There's still a data focus to what we do. I believe there's as efficient as the public markets are, the private markets are wildly inefficient. And some of the things we're able to find and figure out using data and data science is just truly awesome. Give me an example of one of those. We have the ability of discerning trends in a very real-time way. There's a lot of different data sources we're able to ingest, things like Google Trends, but there's a lot of them, where we can tell you on a real-time basis what the fastest-growing trends are in terms of actual consumption and search behavior on things like keto, intermittent fasting, paleo, vegan. We know what the products are that are actually moving. We're able to do a lot of things with data on also optimizing companies. So the first piece is prospecting. We think we're able to uncover a lot of companies that are tiny, off the radar, not front page of the journal type of big privates. So prospecting is one of the places that data science is helpful. Another place is optimization. We have a tool, for example, where with all small businesses, when you're selling stuff, you're selling stuff to a variety of channels. You might be selling it to a local convenience store. You might be selling it to a Kroger, but you're selling stuff all the time. And one of the things that happens in selling anything that's a consumable, the reason I like consumables, just to take a step back, is it has a lot of attributes similar to software where it's generally recession resistant, it's not cyclical, and it has a very high replenishment rate. So it's a very interesting business from that perspective. And when you're selling stuff, a lot of times the buyers, the people buying your stuff, they're busy. They don't reorder as often as they should. They have stockouts. Stockouts are when everyone buys all the stuff in the store and there's nothing left. And if you're not in the store then, when somebody wants to go buy your stuff, you're missing sales. We sort of have this like fantasy that all these companies are efficiently run and perfect, but it's not. And so sometimes they might go four or five days or a week or two weeks and forget to place an order. And they're missing revenue too on their end. So we developed basically this system on one of our companies that looked across all the sales behavior over the last several years by purchaser. And we were able to basically, using AI, figure out how often on a good day, 
how often are they reordering, and what are our sales, and then basically measuring when you kind of go two standard deviations outside of that, something's off. Why aren't they reordering? Do they not like the product anymore? Did they change a manager? Did something happen? And so we can generate basically a list of accounts that are dramatically outside of the norms. And those accounts are then people that the salespeople of that company should be calling and say, hey, why haven't you reordered? And that's something that can dramatically increase the velocities and sales of a company using a combination of data and AI. And so you're forming this holding company and you mentioned it like a mini Berkshire. Is that Hugh as the business is spinning off cash that so you'd be reinvesting that cash into other businesses? No. So I think eventually we're going to have a cash cow type of business. The mini Berkshire aspect of it for me is not so much about having like one cash cow that then funds all the projects. It's more of the concept of having a holding company where you have a lot of synergies and a lot of benefits of having a parent. And this is something that I think is missing from the VC model, where in a lot of the VC portfolios for companies in this space, sometimes you have those portfolios are populated with quasi-competitors. And so you might have literally a fund that has two companies that are sort of similar and they don't want to share anything with each other. A lot of the earlier stage companies that are not that early, these are companies that are worth 100, 200, 400 million dollars. They're still not that profitable, or in many cases, they're not profitable at all. And there's a massive amount of duplicative resources. For many of these companies that might be in the same channels, you can have the same sales team. You could have the same marketing team. You could have the same CFO. And these are things that you can't do unless you're under a fully controlled holding company structure. Probably the most important feature of our structure for HumanCo is that there are a lot of entrepreneurs like me who really care about health and they care about this mission of improving human health and not selling garbage to just make money. A lot of these entrepreneurs that I've met who've had maybe one exit or some that are close to exiting, they've said to me, well, once I sell this, what am I going to do next? I, I want to do this again. I don't want to like be done. Even if they make enough money to technically retire, many of them, this is their passion. They don't want to stop. And so we wanted to create something that actually had a currency that they could be part of for life. And that's something that's really important to me. And so now when we're approaching entrepreneurs, not only are we incubating companies from scratch, but we're also approaching companies to effectively roll them in. And instead of just paying them pure cash, they can get human co-shares. And the growth of their company, which if they want to, they can stay part of forever, they will participate in the growth of human co forever instead of just cashing out. So what's the breadth of these investments? You just mentioned incubating. You mentioned some early stage companies, maybe some companies that have a few legs to it. Where are you looking in the spectrum for these opportunities? So it's cycle dependent. Right now, I believe that we are in a very bubblish part of the cycle, particularly for these kind of early mid-stage health and wellness focused, sexy startups. These companies are trading on revenue multiples. Almost everyone I've looked at doesn't make money or loses staggering amounts of money. Similar to the stock market, we're in very later stages of this, where a lot of these companies have been growing revenue phenomenally, but it's not quite clear that they're viable business models, and their only hope is that they sell to a strategic, and that's how they cash out. And then they're hoping that the strategic can pull out all the fat, make it profitable, but there's a lot of companies that that's not going to work for. So I believe that winter is coming. And I believe that a lot of the funding 
of their expectations of a B and a C and a D isn't going to happen. And similar to 1999, which I was fortunate enough to be in the market for, like the tide goes out fast. All of a sudden when people realize like, wait a minute, this thing's not ever going to make money, there is no funding. I mean, it goes from like, you're hot, you're hot, you're hot to zero. And so right now we believe there's much more alpha in incubating. And I say that with a grain of salt because incubating is hard. And I think the reason I can talk about this publicly is I believe incubation requires a lot of different sources of, of alpha or edge that most people don't have. A lot of investors don't have any operating experience. A lot of investors haven't seen the way the sausage is made. And incubation can be longer. It also requires a tremendous amount of what we call fanaticism. And I don't dare compare myself to Steve Jobs without sounding absurd, but what made Steve Jobs amazing was his fanaticism. And what I think I do well, and I think what we do well, and I certainly think my brother-in-law Jordan has this in spades with Hugh, is it's really hard to make something as good as I think we made that chocolate and Hugh. And it requires a level of insanity. A, I don't think most people have it. And B, it requires a level that I think most people are incapable of. And I think to produce truly amazing products, you have to truly care about the product itself and not about the money and not about your exits. And so I think incubation is really hard, but I think there's huge alpha there because not many people can do it. And it's actually not as expensive if you do it right and you know all of the kind of SWAT teams that you need to incorporate to create a product from scratch. Where are you on the spectrum of investments that you've already made at this point? So Human Co. is a little confusing in this perspective because we just started talking to outside investors. I have been incubating it for over a year, just personally. Ross has been with me the whole time. And I have done a handful of investments under different legal entities, but we call it Human Co., that meet our guardrails and meet our standards and meet our ethos. I think what also makes HumanCo unique is that we have very specific and strict parameters of what we will do and what we won't do. And that's related to the ingredients in the products. It's related to the sustainability of those products. It's related to the mission of the founder. And so we're very clear and defined on what we won't do. Prior to taking outside money, we've made a handful of investments in a few companies that sort of meet our standards and are consistent with the mission. And I'm currently warehousing these companies in kind of the family office balance sheet. And we may move them over formally to this round of Human Co., or we may not. It's only been a handful, and my belief is that there's way more to do. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to basically take on a handful of highly strategic investors who believe in this mission and really want to help us improve human health and change the world. And so Human Co. right now, at least in terms of what people are investing in. We have three companies that we're incubating. We have one that we're in term sheet to basically acquire a very small company that has the best product I've ever encountered. But this founder is brilliant in certain ways because she knows what she doesn't know. And she knows that she doesn't have a good handle on finance, on operations. And so we're a perfect partner for her. And then the fourth element of what we have at Human Co. is we have our data science software platform, which at this point is quite robust. We've been ingesting data for quite a long time. We have just some really interesting insights. And I believe our software platform, there's elements of it which other entrepreneurs 
would want to license or use because I think we can really help their businesses as well. And so that's kind of the composition right now. All right, so to get into just a little detail on maybe one, we were chatting earlier about a particular topical area right now in the health and wellness space. I wonder if you want to want to tackle that one. Yeah, so I've been investing in the cannabis space for probably five years now. And I believe that cannabis is an area where there's just a huge amount of opportunity to have a cleaner, more trustworthy experience in medical cannabis, in CBD, And cannabis has been like the Wild West. And about a year and a half ago, I started spending a lot of time on the vaporization area. And vaporization as a medical method is much healthier than combustion. The idea is that you basically take some element, you heat it up, and I'll speak specifically with cannabis and the chemical compounds within cannabis are called cannabinoids. Cannabinoids have a much lower boiling point than the combustion point of the plant. So when you light cannabis on fire, which is the way people have been consuming cannabis for 2,000 years, and you smoke a joint, you light a bong, whatever, you're inhaling the combustion. You're inhaling the smoke, the particulate, all aspects of the plant, and the fire. There's a lot of stuff you don't want to be inhaling when you light stuff on fire. And so vaporization has been around for 50 years, not for cannabis, but for other medical aspects. And the idea with vaporizing cannabis, which actually started with what's called the flower, where basically people were taking the the marijuana flower, which is that bud that you see on like the front cover of High Times Magazine, you grind it up, it looks like oregano, you then take the ground up flower, you put it into a little kind of oven, that oven heats it up to about 350 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 50 to 80 degrees below combustion, and the cannabinoids actually boil and vaporize into the air, there's no fire, there's no combustion, and you get the cannabinoids. And then what happened in the industry is that people decided that grinding up the flour, putting it in a device, heating up the device, and taking it that way is a pain in the ass. So let's actually try to distill out the cannabinoids, particularly THC, which is the main cannabinoid that gets you high. And let's try to distill that out and just suck on that. And THC and all the cannabinoids are fat-soluble. And so what they started figuring out was they didn't want to like properly take the plant and distill it. They really wanted to just isolate the THC, put it in some other medium that you could then heat up and inhale it. And this has been going on in an unregulated fashion for about 10 years. But there really wasn't much incidence of problems other than people getting too high. And as a side note, cannabis is non-toxic. You can't kill yourself with it even if you tried, which makes it a much better item for human consumption than alcohol. What's happened in the last few months, as you've seen, is there's been hundreds of examples of people developing some kind of lung illness, which the authorities have not fully figured out what it's from, and people are getting sick. And right now there's total hysteria over all vaping is bad, cannabis is bad, people are getting sick from both nicotine and things like Juul, which is also filled with a lot of crap. And even before this, and I just got lucky with this, this was not, there was no genius in this other than I knew that the industry was dirty was about a year and a half ago, and I went out of order, but about a year and a half ago, I met this entrepreneur who was an engineer and a technologist, not a cannabis guy. He had developed devices before. He consulted for Apple. He worked on the iWatch. He had developed a wearable that was sold to Fossil, a brilliant technologist out of Canada. And he had been nudged to create a much better vaping solution. It's called Airgraft, A-I-R-G-R-A-F-T. 
And he found me because he had heard that I was a cannabis investor, but he also had heard that I was obsessed with health and wellness and I was obsessed with finding cleaner solutions to common problems. We ended up really hitting it off and I had always wanted to basically find or create a solution where you could trust the device and I'll get into what makes it toxic. You could trust the device. You could trust the capsules that go into the device. You could verify the oil so that it's organic. There is no additives. There's no adulterants. There's no medium. Most of the vapes right now use propylene glycol. They have other petroleum derived oils that they suspend the cannabinoids in that humans are effectively combusting and inhaling, which is definitely not safe. However, with cannabis, people have been combusting and inhaling cannabis for thousands of years. There's never been an incident of this type of problem. And in the case of the aircraft, we have a fully secure supply chain because one of the problems that we also had heard of, and I think that's part of the problem of this vaping crisis, is that all of these cartridges that go into these pens, particularly with the Juul, are tampered. You can take an empty one and fill it up yourself with your own shit. The aircraft capsules have a microchip embedded in them so that when you put the capsule into the aircraft, you can actually see the provenance of the cannabis, where it was farmed, when it was put into the capsule. We have really strict third-party lab testing. You can see the third-party lab testing results of the oils that went in. And if the capsule has been tampered with, it won't accept it, which is a problem because I do believe that most of these illnesses are coming from other adulterants that are being put into these capsules, some of which are black market, some of which are just stuff that humans aren't supposed to consume. And yeah, so I led the Series A round. We just did a Series B about a few months ago. We kind of got lucky in some ways because the world needs to wake up and say, what's in this? What am I consuming? Where did this come from? Who made this? Is this safe? And the cannabis market is a prime example of a big industry where there's a lot of opportunity where people aren't asking the hard questions about health and wellness or safety. And in the case of cannabis, safety is like the number one concern. And so the CEO of Airgraft has been in touch with a number of regulators about what safe looks like. And he's actually working with regulators on creating policy for how to make this industry safer and more trustworthy. And so this is an interesting example of the type of opportunity where people just don't ask enough hard questions. And I think there needs to be people who actually care about humans' health because there was so much money in cannabis that most people didn't give a shit. And they're just like, yeah, people just want to get high. So we'll just make whatever they want. We'll get them high. And it's their problem. All right, Jason, where can people find you if they're interested in what you're doing? I'm not on social media, which is something that you'll probably convince me to change. I'm on Twitter as an observer. I've never tweeted. I'm on Instagram as an observer. I've never posted a a post on Instagram. I haven't looked at my Facebook in probably five years. So I'm not in the conventional channels. I think what we're going to do for Human Co. is I'll probably have a Twitter account where I start posting interesting things like topics like this that we just talked about. Right now we have just a landing page for HumanCo. We're just still in stealth mode. I think what we're eventually going to have is an application process for entrepreneurs who want to partner with us because there's no monopoly on good ideas. There's brilliant people out there that we'll never find unless they reach out to us. But unlike a VC fund, we do expect HumanCo to be pretty concentrated We're not going to have like 100 bets. We want to be very focused on a few verticals. 
And so I would just say stay tuned. All right. Well, I want to leave a little time for some fun closing questions. So why don't we have at that? What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'd say over the years, it's been a combination of reading, poker, and tennis. Right now, it's tennis. Reading's always up there. But yeah, I was a competitive tennis player. I played college squash, and I started getting back into tennis like five, six years ago. And I just find it has so many cool metaphorical aspects for life. What's your favorite one? Just that like you get so many like bad bounces and weird things that happen and you just have to deal with it. I have terrible days on the court where I just can't understand why I'm playing so badly and I have to just like get out of my head. It requires so much because unlike a team sport, you're alone. You have no one to blame. If you mess up, it's you. And I just find it's just such a challenge for me every day I'm out on the court. What's your biggest pet peeve? Intellectual dishonesty. I change my mind like that when facts are presented to me that are different. I can't stand people who don't listen to facts and can't change their mind. It drives me bananas. If someone wanted to read something to learn as quickly as they could about something important in this health and wellness area or food, what would you recommend? There were some early pioneers on this. Michael Pollan wrote two good books, but it was probably 15 years ago now. One was called The Omnivore's Dilemma. One was called In Defense of Food. Both of those were seminal books for me in my early education. I would definitely recommend those. There's a whole lot of different branches of health and wellness. Some are more kind of agriculture-focused, like those books. Some are more specifically human health-focused. Dr. Mark Hyman has written some early books, and you could just look him up as an author. He's on Amazon. He's written some great books about the health epidemic and sort of why we're all effectively poisoning ourselves with the way we eat and the way we live. And so I would say those would be the two. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mother was always about kindness and being kind to people, especially in New York. There's just not enough of that. And sort of seeing the good in people. I think at times I'm not skeptical enough of certain people, but on balance, my ability to see the good in people the benefits have far outweighed the cons and kind to everybody. I have tremendous disrespect for people who are mean to staff or waiters or cab drivers. And you learn a lot about somebody when you see how they treat people who are less powerful than them. And I think that's just disgusting when I see that. And it happens a lot. My father had this approach of never burning bridges. And I sort of think about it like the positional chessboard and optionality. And I've always done favors for people without any expectation of a quid pro quo. I've done favors for people with no expectation ever of getting that favor paid back. And except if they're a disgusting human being, which I have encountered a few of them, I try not to burn bridges. And I try to, to the extent that I can, and it doesn't take up all my time, to just help people when they need help. All right, one more. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I'd say that probably the most important lesson, which I, I do talk about in the NYU class, and I learned this probably in my early 20s, and I wish I knew this in my teenage years. I have this metaphor I call gasoline versus water. And what it is, is that you always get into fights, you always get into disagreements, you always have things that rub your ego the wrong way. And most humans, in my experience, their ego is too strong and their insecurity is too high, as was mine growing up. That when somebody says something that offends you or they say something that should lead to an argument, most people throw gasoline on that fire. 
So any kind of controversy is a fire. And most people, because they just can't help themselves, they just want to get back at them and they throw gasoline on the fire. And I did it and I see almost all marriages that I think break down are because of this and friendships and business relationships. And I started realizing that I was really good at throwing gasoline on fires when I was young and I was burning a lot of bridges. And I realized that nothing good came of it other than three seconds of feeling better about myself because I gave him a zinger or I said something that was really insulting that I could never take back. And I was reading a lot of Buddhist stuff and I was going through my health crisis and I sort of realized that to get my stress level down, I have to just not get angry, which means that I have to be the bigger person and I have to throw water on fires when I see them. And when I started throwing water on fires, it was insane and amazing what happened. People were shocked where you would think like you could win the argument and you just are the bigger person and you throw water on it and you diffuse it. And this concept has been so helpful for my relationships and my marriage, my business relationships. And I wish I knew this as a 10-year-old to when I was 20 because I had some difficult teenage years because I was very witty, but I would say things that I couldn't take back. And I burned a lot of friendships that I really wish I hadn't. Take 10 seconds Think about your response, and instead of throwing gasoline, throw water and watch what happens. Fantastic. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.